0: your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I just want to start with a caveat this morning. Um, I realize that this text is going to open up several cans of worms that I'm not going to answer. With that being said, Um, I want to try to tether myself as much as possible, as always, to the text. And so, um, this text is rich and it is amazing. And so, um, I want to try to to stick in the text as much as possible, even though I realize up front that it's going to cause a lot of questions. So, um, with that being said, um, we are going to, after the service, for anyone who is interested in sticking around for a little bit, um, do some Q&A and, and hopefully answer some of these questions that you might have um, in a Q&A discussion type forum. So, does that make sense? So, if you have questions, write them down, um, hold on to them, and we'll be having that after the service. So, um, we're going to be in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. And the title of this sermon is Every Spiritual Blessing in Christ. Have you ever bought something and really didn't know what you were getting until later? And in a good way, it turned out to be better than you ever could have imagined. I remember in college watching this absolutely dumb show called Storage Wars. Anyone seen that? Yeah, these guys, um, they, they buy these storage lockers full of things, and they, they didn't at all know what they were getting until the lock was cut, and they got to open the door and rummage through the treasure. Well, imagine if you bought one of these storage lockers, bolt-cut the lock, and open the door to find stacks and stacks and stacks of gold bricks that someone long ago put there, that would be a blessing better than you could have ever imagined. Well, today we're going to dive into something far more meaningful, important and intentional and eternal. What are the blessings that are in Christ that are greater than we could possibly ever imagine? Let's dive into the text. I'm going to read Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Before we move forward, I want to kind of try to set the stage for us here. Uh, Over the years, this passage has created a lot of controversy and debate because it mentions the doctrines of election and predestination. Dun, dun, dun. Scary words, right? While those can be hard topics to wrestle with, if we walk away from this text arguing, we've completely missed the point of the text. This is a text of praise From start to finish. It comes off almost like a song. Paul believed these doctrines. And he didn't see them as controversial. He saw them as something unquestionably praiseworthy about God. In fact, he's so excited that he can almost not stop to breathe. This praise-filled song that we just read, verses 3-14... through is all one sentence. It's 202 words in the Greek text, with no commas, colons, or periods. Paul can't contain his praise for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit here. We'll see in the structure that he highlights praise for all three members of the Trinity. It's amazing. If we can't read this section, and be overjoyed with who God is and what he's done for us in Christ, we're not reading it right. These truths should get us excited and should lead us to praise. So, with that said, my hope is that we'll walk away from this text not disputing, but singing the doxology. You with me? Now, I had originally planned on teaching this entire section in one sermon, because as I shared, it's all one sentence, and it goes together. But the more and more I studied it, the more I realized that, that teaching this in one sermon is a fool's errand. Uh, it could be done, but we'd miss some of the depth of what exactly Paul's saying. I learned really quickly this week that I was out over my skis and I had bitten off too much that I couldn't chew. So the structure of this section is really easy to see. Verse 3 is the bedrock statement with verses 4 through 14 amplifying that truth and explaining that truth. So, we'll start with verse 3, and then I'll give you the outline for the rest of the text and what we'll actually cover today. So look with me at verse 3. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So, that's what Paul wants to make sure that happens from this text. That we walk away blessing or praising God. Why? Because He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How? In Christ. In Christ. So, what exactly are the spiritual blessings that we've been given in Christ? And how does all of this work, so to speak? That's what Paul spells out in verses 4 through 14. So, here's our structure for the next couple of weeks. Spiritual blessing number one, and point number one, election. We're chosen by the Father. Spiritual blessing number two, redemption. Chosen by the Father, and we're redeemed by the Son. Spiritual blessing number three, inheritance. We're chosen by the Father, we're redeemed by the Son, and we're assured by the Spirit. Our blessings are Trinitarian. And as we'll see, they span the gamut of time past, present, and future. Today, we're going to focus in on spiritual blessing number one. So, point one, election. We're chosen by the Father. Let's look at verses three through six again. And again, I want to encourage you to have your Bibles open to be rooted in the text as we walk through this. Verses three through six. Again, we have to go into this topic understanding three baseline truths from verse three that shape everything else. First, and the first word of the sentence, blessed, blessed. Eulagetas is the Greek word here. And what that means is praiseworthy. God is to be praised for this precious doctrine. Second, in and through this doctrine, we as Christians are blessed. In election and in the other doctrines that we'll walk through over the next couple of weeks, God has acted kindly towards us. We are blessed. These aren't, as some young people today say, cringeworthy doctrines. Not at all. They're not truths that we need to be squeamish about, or afraid of, or embarrassed of. This is a song of praise not of lament. Election is an absolute blessing from God that results in praise of God. Paul nor Jesus are shy about this, and we shouldn't be either. Third, these blessings are in Christ. They're in Christ. Paul is intentionally repetitive in this regard in this one sentence the phrases in christ in him or in the beloved they occur 11 different times in the greek text this is paul's description of a christian in fact paul never uses the word christian in any of his writings it's always in christ in christ in christ in him he doesn't want us to miss this these blessings are for those who are in Christ. They're for those who have placed faith in him and are united with him. In other words, outside of him, these blessings simply don't exist. As Christians, all of our eggs are in his basket. That's what he's saying. Salvation is in Christ alone. Our sins were nailed to the cross and put to death In Him, our resurrection, our new life. Also, in Him, our righteousness. In Him. That's how we get into these blessings. In Him. Our only boast is Christ. That's our context. Blessed in Christ. With the result that we praise or bless God brief pause here. I want to give two big disclaimers for all that we're about to walk through. First, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. You're always welcome here. And I want you to know up front that what we're about to walk through is complex stuff. And I want you to know explicitly that the core of the good news of the Bible is is actually quite simple. And it's this. That Jesus, the the Son of God, came to this earth and lived a perfect life in every single way. He died on the cross as our substitute to pay the penalty that, that each and every one of us owe. And in doing this, He absorbed the just wrath of God on our behalf. He was buried, but overcame the grave in resurrection three days later. Beating sin, Satan, death, again, on our behalf. And for those who turn from sin and trust in him or or put their faith in him, there's forgiveness. There's a declaration of righteousness. There's eternal life. That's the simple good news of Jesus. And all you need to know to be saved So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that. Second, if you are a Christian, this is still complex stuff. Same message to you. While I understand this doctrine to be central and beautiful, understanding it or even agreeing with it isn't what saves you. Hear that loud and clear. Saving faith is in Jesus. Not in the doctrine of election, even though I believe that's how it happens. Saving faith is in Jesus. So you may walk away today and totally disagree with what I'm about to teach. It may make you uncomfortable. You can still be a Christian and even a member of this church. Okay, look again at verse 4. Verse 4 Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The first blessing of Paul's song here is election, or God's choosing of us. And there are three main views of election. Number one, the view that simply denies election altogether. This is the view that basically puts its fingers in its ears, closes its eyes, and says, this doctrine isn't in the Bible. It doesn't even exist. View one. This view, I hope you'll see this, is untenable. The Bible teaches election in multiple places. In his study of election, J.C. Ryle lists 11 different texts that simply and straightforwardly and explicitly teach this doctrine. So, you have to do something with that. You can't ignore it. It's all over the place. You may decide to interpret the word differently or define it in some other way, but you can't deny that Scripture teaches it. The question is, what does it mean? So that's view one, just ignoring it. The second view is the view that God elects, but that it's based on foreknowledge. And foreknowledge is defined as, in this view, God looking through the the tunnel or the corridor of time and choosing based on what he sees us doing down the road. This is known as the prescience view. This view, I want to suggest, is also untenable for multiple reasons. Number one, that's not how Scripture uses the word foreknowledge, ever. When the Bible uses the word foreknowledge, it's synonymous with love. That God foreloved us. Further, This view is actually not election at all. James Boyce says it this way. He says, one problem is that an election like that is not really election. In such a reconstruction, God does not preordain an individual to anything. The individual actually ordains himself. That's correct. And as Boyce points out, this rests on a faulty understanding of the human condition as a whole. It believes that if God were able to to look through the tunnel of time, that humans would actually, in and of themselves, have faith in a God-directed choice. Calvin comments this way. He says, How should God foresee that, that which could not be? For we know that all Adam's offspring is corrupted, and that we do not have the skill to think one good thought of doing well. And much less, therefore, we are able to commence to do good. Although God should wait a hundred thousand years for us, if we could remain so long in the world, yet it is certain that we should never come to him, nor do anything else but increase the mischief continually to our own condemnation. In short, the longer men live in the world, the deeper they lunge themselves into their own damnation. And therefore, God could not foresee what was not in us before he himself put it into us. By the way, I know that I just quoted Calvin. (laughs) Election and predestination are often associated with Calvinism. But you should know up front that Luther and Augustine before him taught the exact same things, maybe even more than Calvin. That these doctrines that Calvin... Or they're not doctrines that Calvin invented. They're in Scripture. Now, back to our train of thought. As a starter question, we have to ask, in the garden, how far did we fall? How far did we fall in the garden? Did we fall forward? as secular humanists would have us believe, that we're getting better and better and better and better as humans? Did we partially fall, as Pelagians and Arminians believe? A partial fall, leaving us not dead in our sin, but just kind of distorted. Able, in our own power, to have faith and to choose Christ. So do we fall forward? Or did we partially fall? Or did we fall, leaving us dead in our sin, unable to make any move towards Christ on our own? I believe that this, this third option, is the overwhelming and clear teaching of Scripture. R.C. Sproul puts it like this. He says, if the final decision for the salvation of fallen sinners were left in the hands of fallen sinners, we would despair of all hope that anyone would be saved. So, that leaves us with option three. Option three is the view that God elects sovereignly. Not based on anything in us. God's election of us is unconditional. In other words, his his choosing or his election of us rests not in something God sees in us that's good, but purely in the good pleasure of his sovereign will. And this is what we see God doing all over the Bible. God chooses Abraham in Genesis twelve, verses one through three. He chooses him so that he might be a blessing to all nations. Jacob and Esau, the brothers. If you don't know the story, I encourage you to go read it. It's in Genesis chapters 25 through 36. Genesis 25 and 36, the story of Jacob and Esau. But in Romans chapter 9, Paul uses their story to talk about God's sovereign election. Romans 9, verses 6 through 13 says this It says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. God chooses Abraham. He chooses between Jacob and Esau. How about the people of Israel as a whole? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. It says this, it says, For you are a people, speaking to Israel, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. And look at this, verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you, and he chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. People of Israel, chosen specifically... In Abraham. See that? Similarly, Deuteronomy 14, verse 2. Again, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This kind of thing is all over the Bible. God choosing people who don't deserve it and then promising to pour out blessings on them. Kent Hughes notes this. He says, We must never allow our subjective experience of choosing Christ to water down the fact that we would not have chosen him if he had not first chosen us. We see this truth in John chapter 6, verse 44, on the lips of Jesus. John 6, 44, Jesus says, No one... No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. A couple verses later in John 6, Jesus repeats the same truth. John 6, verses 63 through 65, he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And who it was that would betray him. Verse 65. And he said, that is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. John 15, verse 16. Again, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. Back in Paul, second Thessalonians two, verse 13, second Thessalonians two, verse 13. Paul says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. I know I'm being repetitive here, but this isn't meant to be a cold, dead, lifeless doctrine. It's it's it's, it's not meant to be ripped apart, it's also not meant to be used as a cudgel to beat people over the head. This truth is a blessing and it should lead us to praise. God has chosen us. Now, when did this choosing happen? Cruz, my son's gonna be bummed that he missed this sermon because he loves Star Wars. When did this choosing happen? How do all Star Wars movies start? A long time ago, in a galaxy far away. That's where this story started. Look again at the text, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. That's when we were chosen. Before we believed. Before we were born. Before the world was born. In verse 5, Paul tells us that he predestined us. There's no hidden Greek word meaning to this, it's exactly as it sounds. What's destiny? A destiny is a point toward which we're moving but haven't yet reached. It's a destination. Add pre to that, and you've got a decision made beforehand. It means that before we existed, God foreordained or determined beforehand to set his love on his people, to choose them for salvation you understand the beauty of this? Before the foundation of the world, you, I, we had no merit for God to choose us. We didn't deserve it. As we said before, none of us deserve to be elected. This isn't something that, that we should take pride in, as if we're elected because we're somehow better than other people or, or smarter than other people. We're not. We're all born into sin and have sinned because of that our entire lives. But He chose us before the foundation of the world. you understand that? You can't alter God's choice of you in Christ. You can't do it. You can't alter it. This is partially where we rest in the assurance of our salvation. Think about this. If if our salvation rested in us, do you realize how unstable and uncertain that would be? Calvin again writes this. He says, If our faith were not grounded in God's eternal election, it is certain that Satan might pluck it from us every minute. You can rest assured that your salvation isn't going anywhere. Not because you chose God, but because He chose you, intentionally. Second, this is beautiful because God has always been in love with His people. He's always been in love with His people. My friend, Matt, once compared this to the popular 90s television show, Friends. I'm dating myself there. In the show, friends, Ross and Rachel have this tormented romantic history where the timing just keeps not working out. One or the other of them always keeps messing it up somehow. Then one of their friends will mess it up. They never seem to end up together. And there's so much tension there. But even though everyone knew that they were made for each other. Then, finally... Towards the the end of the show, five years in, there's this tear-filled, emotional moment. Ross turns to her and he says, It's you. It's always been you. For those who are in Christ, think about this. There's never been a moment when God didn't love you. Revelation 13.8 says that your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. It's never been by mistake or accident. He chose you before the foundation of the world. It's always been you. So regardless of how you got here, regardless of how long and winding a road it's been, if you're a Christian, you're not here by accident. It's always been you. Do you see why Paul got so excited and so joyful about this? So, we've seen the what, God chose us, and the when for the foundation of the world. But what's the outcome? This is where it gets amazing. But before we get there, I want to stop and address one common objection to this doctrine. Like I said, there are other objections, and we'll talk about those in the Q&A time, but I want to stop and address one common objection, because I believe it's answered in this text. Some think, well, if God chose me and predestined me before the foundation of the world, I can just live however, however I want, and I'm good. After all, God chose me. Not so. This couldn't be farther from the truth. In fact, the the text says the exact opposite. Look again. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, what's next? That we should be holy and blameless before him. We're chosen so that we should be sanctified or holy. Sinclair Ferguson concisely says... We're certainly not chosen because we're holy, but we're chosen in order to become holy. That's right. We talked about this last week. We're not saintly, but we're declared saints in Christ. Harold Ockingay, if you're familiar with him, he founded Fuller Seminary and Gordon Conwell Seminary. He says it this way. He says, if God has elected us, He has not elected us to remain sinners, but to become holy. It is an anomaly or an error to speak of the elect living in sin. God never chose us to continue in sin, he says. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath beforehand ordained that we should walk in them. He goes on to say, therefore, the the test of election, of our election, is the holiness of our lives. Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. We ought not to delude ourselves into believing that we belong to the elect of God if we are not living holy lives before him. The proof of this is that we become holy, that we approximate the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Now, to the amazing part. Paul praises two outcomes or results of election here. And both of them have to do with being a part of God's family. First, when God elects us, we become his bride. We become his bride. Where do I see that? Look again at verse four. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy And blameless before him. Holy and blameless before him. Yeah, Drew, you already read that. Now, flip over and look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. Paul says this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, here we go, that she might be what? Holy and without blemish. The bride. Holy and without blemish. Ephesians 1.4, holy and blameless. Same Greek word there. The word amamos. Blameless. Holy and blameless. When we're elected, we're married to Christ as his bride. And uh, he's the most faithful husband in the universe. He loves us like no other. So first, when God elects us, we become his bride. And second... When God elects us, we become his children. Look at verse 5. It says, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ. Many of you know that our church partners with an organization that we prayed for earlier called Foster the City. Amazing people. Or I guess I should say, an amazing network of churches. Now, all committed to displaying the gospel through fostering children. There's such a great need for for kids who are in broken family situations to be fostered. Wonderful gospel opportunities. The Davises have been models to us as a church in this. And right now, I've got a friend named John Brackett, again, who we prayed for earlier. He's a church planner up in San Francisco. And for years, he and his wife have fostered children. And for the last couple of years, they fostered this precious little girl named Heaven. Well, as we speak, they're on the verge of being able to fully adopt her. What does that mean? It means permanence. For years, this this little girl had to bounce around from one place to the next, never knowing how long she'd be there. Not anymore. Adoption means permanence. The moment that adoption goes through, she's a bracket forever, part of the family. Again, do you see the assurance we have as believers in Christ? He predestined us for adoption. As sons and daughters, we never have to be in the position of wondering if we're saved or not. We're God's children forever. Within this, it is also the idea of full status in the family, as an heir with all of its rights and privileges. Adoption. Any of you familiar with the name Julius Caesar? Most of us, most of us know him because of how he died, right? By assassination in A.D. 44. Well, he had no legitimate children, so in his will, Julius Caesar he adopted his grandnephew, Octavian. Adoption meant that he was a full heir with all of its rights and privileges. Think about that. He became the next Caesar. Caesar Augustus, we know him as. Can you imagine that? Being adopted by a Roman ruler. Paul says, you were adopted by the Father, through the Son. The God of the universe has adopted you and made you a permanent heir of the family makes God your father and all other Christians your brothers and sisters you're a part of the greatest family in the world crazy uncles and all do you see why this isn't something to argue about but to sing about it's unbelievable so we've got the what election we've got the when before the foundation of the world We've got the outcomes being a bride and a son or a daughter. Now, let's ask the why question. Why did God choose us? Why did God choose us? In one sense, we simply have to shrug our shoulders and say, I don't know. I don't deserve this. I don't know. But in another sense, Paul answers this question right here in the text. Why did God choose you? Because he loves you. Look at the end of verse 4 and into verse 5. In love. In love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. The election isn't random or haphazard. It also isn't unjust. It comes from a perfect God. God who's all-knowing and all-good. And it's done in love. Second, why did God choose us in love? But second, we're chosen at the end of verse 5, according to the what? The purpose of his will. Purpose of his will. Purpose is kind of a vanilla translation for this word. It's the word eudokia. Eudokia. And it means good pleasure or satisfaction or approval or pleasure. Do you understand this? Behind this doctrine, behind this doctrine, God has chosen us. He's predestined us for adoption as his sons and daughters. And he's smiling. He's pleased. His providential will is being done in our election. It's like what we just sang earlier. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God predestined us in love, and he's pleased about it. Finally, why did God choose us? Simply put, we're not the end goal here. God's glory is election's final object. God's glory is election's final object. He chose us, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. If this, this whole sentence, verses 3 to 14, if that whole sentence is a song of praise... This is the chorus. Paul repeats it three different times. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. The point of all of this is that God and God alone would be praised for our salvation. And in this section, it's all about praising him for his grace. Why did he choose us? Grace, unmerited favor. It's unearned. It's undeserved. Think about that. If that's true, the only one in this equation that's worthy of praise is God, because of his glorious grace. Not God and a little bit of us. God alone because of his loving, sovereign election of us. I confess, this is mysterious. There's so much about this this that's mysterious. But it's breathtaking. It's a sweet and beautiful doctrine. It's a treasure that's that's greater than we could possibly imagine. It should humble us. And it should take away uh, all sense of boasting and of pride. That should lead us to sing praise to God with all of our hearts. So let's praise God for the blessing of election. Let's pray.